So Leviticus 17 uh, begins, we've been in the book of Leviticus all spring here at RUF. Uh, It begins kind of the second section of the book of Leviticus. The Day of Atonement was last week. That is the crux of the book. Chapter 17 begins what's called the Holiness Code. So to, to overly simplify things, I would say like this, that chapters 1 through 15 kind of say, like, here's what's true. Here's what's true of, of what it looks like when God comes near and how uh, people respond to that and how God commands that we respond to him. Chapter 16 is the crux. It's the day of atonement. Here's what happens when you don't do all those things I've commanded you to do. There's a day that clears, that clears the air. And from 17 on, it really takes a turn and says, okay, so most of the other stuff had to do with like the rules and the regulations about, about worship and how we were to approach the tabernacle and all these kind of formally things. This stuff now really gets from 17 on, gets into the details of our lives. And it gets into a much kind of more practical day-to-day type stuff of um, really, okay, as God's people, here's how you're to go live in the world. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next handful of weeks. And, and look, this section is filled, that we're about to be looking at, it's filled with commands uh, and commands to be obeyed and sins to be avoided. And it's constantly repeating this main theme, be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. But before we get there, Leviticus 17 is like a strange beginning to that. Because in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about what, the, what God says about sexuality and friendship and partying and caring for, caring for the poor and all these other things. But before we get there, he starts out with this, and it's kind of weird. When, um, now, hit pause on that. Let me tell you a story real quick. When I was uh, living in Nashville, working with RUF as an intern, um, I had met this girl named Sarah, at, uh, at church, actually at an RUF meeting, and then we ended up at the same church. And y'all, our relationship started weird because, some of y'all know this, we have a bizarre, it's my wife, Sarah, um, we have a bizarre, like, <laughs> how we met story. Um, I, was, I was a serial dater in college, and my campus minister, like, before I left to move to Nashville, I had just broken up with a girl, and he's like, you need to chill, and like not date anybody for six months. Like just go out there and, and land in Nashville and figure your life out and make some friends. Like you don't need a girlfriend. So I met Sarah like three weeks later. <laughs> and it got a weird start though because like I was going to do what he said. And so the very first time we spent time together, I asked her to come over to my house after church. It was not a date. And uh, we were going to watch 24, and I told her, I, I made her a sandwich, because I'm romantic, and, um, and we sat down on the couch, and it's like, before I hit play, I, I just said, hey, I can't go on a date with you. I'm not going to ask you out, because my campus minister told me not to, because I've had a lot of girlfriends. Like, right out of the gate, that's what I started with. That's a weird beginning, right? Don't do that. I don't recommend that. It's a weird start. So this passage, here's the bridge, you ready for it? (laughs) This passage in the coming weeks, the holiness code is going to be about the stuff of life. But before we get there, God says, okay, 
If you're going to actually understand what I'm commanding you about sexuality and about partying and how you're to enjoy good parties and about friendship and about all these things, if you're ever going to enjoy what I'm commanding you to do and what I'm keeping you from doing, then you have to understand this first. You have to understand that that if you do... If you try to follow me, if you try to do things in any way that is even slightly different than what I have commanded you, then it's going to come unraveled. Now, why would he say that? Because anything that isn't exactly as God has ordered it, and if we try to form our lives around anything else, our hearts are going to do what the Bible calls idolatry. Our hearts are going to enter into an idolatrous relationship with something else. Now, that's a weird statement. What do I mean? I mean that any time we look to anything other than God in the way he has revealed himself in the Bible, any time we look to anything other than him in the way that he's revealed himself, the Bible says you are looking to something other than God for your life. And you're looking to something which cannot satisfy you, and you're asking it to satisfy you. And God calls that thing you're looking to an idol, and he's calling that process idolatry. And the reason that he starts us out here is because of this. If you don't understand this in the Christian life, if they didn't understand it back there in Judaism, and if we don't understand it now... Then for the rest of your life, the Christian life for you, if you're a Christian, will feel like that whack-a-mole game at Chuck E. Cheese, right? Where those moles pop up and you get the things and you're beating them down. Or like if you play Call of Duty or any other game on, right, there's always someone around the corner just waiting to kill you. That's what sin is going to feel like in your life. That at every turn, there's like something coming to get you and you're just like, ah, da-da-da. And you're so tired of just like dealing with the issues, And God's saying, you have to understand that underneath all the issues is the the issue of idolatry. And this passage talks about it. This is how we make sense of that. Leviticus 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills an outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offering to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, Any of any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten uh, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by the beast, whether he, is, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. This is God's word. May he add a blessing to it. There are three big things that stick out tonight. I know that's surprising for you because... I'm a Presbyterian minister, and I do threes every week. So, it's not surprising at all. But there are three big movements to this passage uh, that I want us to see. First, is we need to see how it is that God is spotting idolatry within the camp of Israel. So, uh, this passage is, is bloody. It's got a lot of things going on. But I want us to look down at verses 3 through 9 in particular. And within this section... God gives us insight into the nature of idolatry and how it is that we can see it. And the first thing we see about it is that idolatry, that idols can look like the real thing. They can look like the real thing. Let me ask you this. How many of y'all have been to a big city, uh, Chicago, New York City, uh, maybe probably L.A. that has Chinatown? Like an area of town where you can go get knockoff goods. Yeah, several of y'all. Okay, it's a lot of fun, right? You go there and it's all the like newest, coolest stuff and the newest and coolest patterns and clothes and all this. But you go get that stuff and it's cheap, right? It's cheap. It looks real and like the watches are working and you rub the jewelry and it doesn't come off right away. And the, the purses look like leather. It, it's awesome, And so you go buy this stuff for a fraction of the cost. You pay $10 for a Rolex watch. Or if you're lucky, you whittle them down a little more and you pay $5 for it. Or you go get a Gucci purse or coach or like whatever your thing is, you go there and you get it for way less. But what's the thing? It's not real. It's not real. So when I was in college, actually after out of college and much older and more mature, I was in the parking lot of a Lowe's on a Saturday afternoon. It was a really nice day. And there was a white van that pulled up next to me out in the parking lot. I was just about to get back in my car, and this white van pulls up to me. And these two guys dressed in uniforms with the word Hollywood audio video over the left, uh, the left breast patch and with a van that said Hollywood audio video on it. They pull up to me, and they said, hey, what's your name? I'm I'm Brent. Listen, man, listen, Brent. Uh, We work for Hollywood Audio Video out of Dallas, Texas, and we've been here this weekend on a delivery and install of some home theater equipment. And lo and behold, we had backed up our van to the loading dock this morning before we left Dallas. 
we get here to the job site and we realize that they put twice as much of the equipment that we needed for this job. And here, look at this invoice. They signed off on it. So we called the boss and said, hey, you sent us twice as much as we need. And and our boss said, just sell it down there. We can't load it back into the system. Just sell it down there and bring the money home. And they're showing me paperwork, and and I'm like, well, man, this sounds awesome. So I go in the back of the white van, and I I, throw the doors. (laughs) Hang with me. It gets worse. Um, They throw the doors open, and they're showing me this home theater equipment, and it is amazing. Like, these speakers are big, and they're pretty, and it's like a light wood grain finish with some silver on there. Y'all, it is nice stuff. And it's got prices on the box. Like each one of these speakers costs $1,495. And then there's like the whole subwoofer and the surround speakers and all this stuff. And I'm thinking like, dang, God, you do love me. And you ordained for me to be here in this parking lot at this moment so that I could have this deal. I am going to get the best deal of my life. And so I'm sitting there doing the math and adding up these speakers. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get two of those. That's $3,000. i am going to get this uh, subwoofer surround speaker. That's another $1,500. i have got $4,500 worth of stuff. Hey, will you guys take $1,000? And they kind of looked at each other. and Okay. It's like, all right, just come with me. Come get in my car. I don't have it on me, but I'm going to take you to the bank and go get it out of the ATM. So I drive into the bank. I take out $1,000 at ATM because I was a working man, had lots of money. And um, that's not true. I had been working for a month. Went out, drew out $1,000, gave it to them, sent them on their way. Y'all, I hit the jackpot on this stuff. And so I'm so excited. I'm driving home, and I call my brother, my older brother, who lives in Oklahoma City. And I was like, dude, you will never believe what just happened. And I told him the whole story. He was like, hey... Uh, check your email. I just sent you a link about the white van speaker scam. Heart drop. The speakers look so good. <laughs> that wood looks so real. They just weren't the real thing. And that's how idolatry works, y'all. It looks like the real thing. Look in the passage. You're looking there, and it's like there's these sacrifices going on. Like, isn't that what we just spent the last six weeks talking about? Is God is commanding people to sacrifice for all kinds of things. But look, the devil is in the details. You know the real from the fake when you look under the wood veneer, when you open up the face of the watch and you see the gears. You know it when you rub the leather and it starts wearing off. Right there in the passage, it says... That the sacrifices were made in the camp. And even sometimes they were made outside of the camp. And not at the tabernacle where God said they were to be made. It's so subtle, isn't it? Like, I wouldn't have noticed that. And I'm, I'm a pastor. I went to seminary. If I would have just read this passage, I would not have seen that. You got to do it God's way, he's saying. And if it's not that way, if it's, even if it's a subtle change, it's different. And therefore, it is not the real thing. And in that, we get to the heart of the issue. That doing worshipy things isn't worship. That, that worship-ish isn't real worship. That things that are God-like are not godly. 
And God calls those, those little nuanced things, he calls them idolatry. Now, we think that these things are minor. Like, good grief, how big of a deal is it that they did some sacrifices over here or maybe out there somewhere and not at the, not at the tabernacle? We think it's not a big deal, but look at verse 7. Look at how God sees this. He knows what's going on in their heart. He says, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons. I don't even know what a goat demon is, but it doesn't sound good, right? He likens what they're doing to whoring themselves out. He's saying this is serious, y'all. It is serious that anything that is done in a way other than exactly what I've, in the way that exact, the exact way that I've said it's to be done, God says it is not the real thing. I can't accept it. And in fact, I've got to send you out of the camp for it. Here's what I want us to get in this part. We don't get to approach God on our own terms. We just don't. That if you want to come to the God of the Bible and receive what he is offering you, you come on his terms. And that means that we don't get to take the parts of the Bible that we like and kind of formulate our own thoughts of the Bible and say, ooh, that's what I believe. I'm a Christian and and here's what that means for me. Uh, We don't get to take um, some, some Bible verses to justify the things that we're doing. And just like call that Christianity and say that we follow Jesus. God is saying we take him as a whole or we don't get him at all. That we take him on his terms or we don't get him. And Jesus says it like this. You know, we think like, oh gosh, that's the God of the Old Testament. Thankfully, Jesus has relaxed that a little bit. No, no, no. John fourteen six. Jesus says this. His disciples are, are talking about the way to get to God and to get to heaven. And Jesus says... I am the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hear this. If the sum of the Israelites' religious experience back then didn't lead them to the tabernacle, then it wasn't real worship. And for us... If the sum of your religious experience doesn't lead you to Jesus, it's not Christianity. If the sum of your religious experience leads you to a small group thing, that's great. I'm all for community and small groups, but if that is what your religious experience is, and it doesn't have Jesus right in the middle of it, then it's not Christianity. If what you're thinking you're doing is following Jesus, and yet he's not at the center point of your life, then it's not Christianity. And frankly, the Bible would call it idolatry. And that is harsh language. I get it. I do. And we're going to nuance this in a lot of ways in the coming weeks. But if it's not with Jesus at the center, it's not Christianity. It's something else. And look, y'all, that sounds so exclusive. It does. And we don't like this. We want to think that religion is like a big mountain and we're all kind of traveling up it on our own trails. And then we all get at the top and realize, oh, how'd you get here? Well, I was over here doing this. And here we are all at the top following God. That's, that's not biblical religion. That's not, the, that's not Christianity. That's other things, but it's not that. So it seems exclusive. But hear me say this. 
It is exclusive in the path, but not in terms of the people. Look down the passage at verse 8. It says, Any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he goes on, but the, the implication there is like, look, you don't have to have been born into Israel to be, a, to be a part of this. Anybody who is doing wrong worship is cut out by implication. Anyone who does right worship can be brought in. And, and the New Testament very much picks up that language. It may, actually makes it explicit. The gospel is neither for Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor, one, male nor female, Scythian nor barbarian, and all these other things. It's saying, who can believe in Jesus? Anyone. It is utterly inclusive in terms of its scope and reach. But it is absolutely exclusive in terms of its path. God took this kind of thing very serious back then. And he says you'd be cut off from the people if you didn't obey it. Why? Why would you have to be cut off if you didn't do it exactly this way? Because he went to seventh grade and he knows that peer pressure matters. And he knows that if, if we believe something wrongly, we're going to start affecting the people around us. And so what God is saying is, if you're believing wrong things, we've got to get you out of here so that you're not spreading that wrong thinking. So he says, you've got to get out of the camp. Why did God take this stuff so seriously? That's another question. Why did he take it so seriously? It seems harsh. That actually leads us to the second point. In verses 10 through 16... It probably actually sounded a lot like the first part of the semester here. There's blood everywhere, and there's, uh, there's sacrifices, and they're eating blood, and all like, what in the world is happening? Everything that we talked about for the last number of weeks that talks about blood, it is like a signpost pointing to this passage. Verses 11, verses 14, look down in there. It talks about the life of a creature is in its blood. And that's where, and where blood is spilled, life is lost. And so when we see God forbidding his people to eat animals that have blood in them, and all these different things that he's forbidding, that's pointing us to the bigger reality that, that is this. That God is saying, you are not to do that because I am the author and source of life. And as soon as blood starts exiting, that means that death is present. And I'm to have nothing to do with death, and you're to have nothing to do with death. Therefore, do not do these things. God is a God who created this world to be perfect forever, and he created us in it to live forever. Do you know that? That death is unnatural to the human condition. It was not created to be this way. You were not created to live for 80 years and then go peace out for, for the rest of your life in the dust. Like, that's not how it was supposed to be. God created a world and created people in it that were to live ad infinitum forever. And what this means is that God is so pro-life that it would make all the political parties in the world blush. 
He's so pro-life that it makes all of us uncomfortable. Here's what I mean. Yes, God absolutely cares about life at conception. Why wouldn't he? He created sperm and eggs. He created procreation. He made sex fun. Like He made that stuff. And he says that it absolutely matters when life is conceived. And so his people are to protect that and they are to exalt that life. And God, he, he adds on to that and says, and if you don't, then there will be severe repercussions for that. And so, consequently, that is why Christians throughout the ages have championed uh, measures to try and stop abortion. That's why it is all rooted in this stuff right here. Look, y'all, I know, I know that there are all kinds of complicated issues around this. Complex medical scenarios and ethical dilemmas, and I totally understand that. And there's no way I can answer that tonight and... In two hours tonight. No way. But here's what I want to say. Is that God is the author and source of life. And so he is going to preserve and protect life at all costs. But let me challenge those of you in here who are like, yeah, see, like my party's right. God says we are to protect and preserve right life in every and all circumstances. So... For the woman that you've walked with or that you've championed her cause to not go get an abortion and all this stuff. For you to not care about her or her child or anyone else involved in that process from that point forward is sinful. It is ugly. It is not championing life in its fullest. And for you to furthermore, for you to be okay with Classes, whole classes of people of certain racial backgrounds or certain status or certain classes for you to look at them and either yawn in indifference or kind of more aggressively enter in and, and, and put them down in any way. That is ugly. That is forbidden. That is anti-life. And God says, I am not about that. Or for you to write off people. Somebody here at TU that looks different than you. People who who our society considers fringe. People with physical abnormalities. People with mental deficiencies. People who don't seem to be adding a lot to society. You absolutely cannot write them off. So anything that hints at injustice or oppression or any sort of belittling of anyone, this passage is saying you're to have nothing to do with that. And you're to jump in and seek to defend people and defend those causes when it is present. That is the positive call to life that this is saying. Because the life is in the blood. And as long as people have blood pumped in their veins, their life matters. Jesus Jesus doesn't fit into our categories. When it comes to kings and kingdoms and whose sides he's on, Scott Saul said it, it's on the front page of your bulletin. Jesus is the king of his kingdom, and that's the one that he's for. And so that may and probably should make us pretty uncomfortable here in America when we have to make decisions about political parties and who to elect and all this stuff. Look, if you think these issues are simple, you just don't understand them. So let's do each other and everyone around us a favor And let's respect and enter into these kind of dialogues with charity and humility and realize that, you know what, I may have something to learn. 
I may have thought too simplistically on this stuff. It's hard. I'm not saying don't champion the things that you care about. I'm saying we need to champion probably a lot more than we've cared about to date. Now, you're thinking, good grief, Brent. (laughs) This feels like a tangent on this passage. I'm telling you it's not. I'm telling you it's not because it makes us realize that if we've cozied up to any sort of religious system, even one that takes the name of Jesus or calls itself Christian in some way, but if it doesn't fiercely seek to align with God in his protection and preservation of life, then it is not godly. So if the thing that you're doing is not getting at God's protection and preservation of life in all forms, then it is not biblical Christianity. And it's idolatry. And God is against that. See, it can look like the real thing. It's just not. So what do we do? Because that's kind of convicting. Well, there's deliverance for this. It's a sobering passage. It's humbling. Um, Because, look, whether you've been a part of making a decision about an abortion, something in our minds that's the extreme case, or whether you've just written people off around you, or whether you've been silent when there's been injustice around you, wherever it is that you find yourself, we all guilty. We're all guilty of idolatry. We've all got animals in the backyard, and we've got blood coming out of our mouths. We are all idolaters, y'all. It hits us all. And so where's the hope in this? Well, look back in the passage. All along the way, God is giving provision for them to get rid of it. He's saying that you may bring that sacrifice to the tent of meeting. There's a way to make this right. There's a way to take your false worship and make it right worship. Correct yourself. Get back in here. And he says he will make atonement for it. And he goes on in verses 13 through 16, and he talks about the way to make this right. You can, you can bathe, your clothes, bathe yourself and wash your clothes and all this, and you can, you can be unclean till the evening. But look, then you'll be clean tomorrow, and it'll be fine. He's giving all these provisions for how you would be brought back in. One commentator says it this way. Yet in a curious reversal... Though the people of Israel were forbidden to drink blood, the people of Christ are commanded to do so. In the message of the gospel, not only does Jesus have to take the sinner's place and lay down his life as a ransom, but sinners have to absorb his life so that they may begin to live for God. This is why Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no part in me. To drink his blood as it is offered in the wine of the Lord's Supper is to assimilate the benefits of his death and infuse every part of our being with his life. Listen to what he says. Truly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of my blood, sorry, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you hear what that commentator is saying? He's saying that in the gospel, things get flipped. That back then they were prohibited from eating anything in the blood. And Jesus comes and he takes this passage and he reinterprets it through himself. And it's as if he is saying this. 
Verse 11, look back at that, and I'm going to reinterpret it as Jesus would. The life of your flesh is in my blood, and I have given myself for you at the cross to make atonement for your souls, for it is my blood that makes atonement. In the old covenant, in the old way, blood was forgiven. It, was a, it had the aura of death around it. But through Jesus, blood is the means to life. Because it is in the shedding of his blood that we have life. And that we are not cast out, but brought in. Several years ago, I heard uh, this story about a Polish man named Witold Pilecki. Uh, in September of 1940, uh, he did something unthinkable. So... Uh, Polish people at that time had heard about the horrors of Auschwitz and the concentration camps and the atrocities that were happening there. Um, And they were just rumors because no one was getting out of Auschwitz to tell about it. Right? They would hear things on the news or through the grapevine, um, but no one was getting out. So Vital, who himself was a Christian living in Poland, he got identification papers labeling himself as Jewish. He made them up. And Nazis were rounding up Jewish people in Warsaw, Poland. And so he went and stands in the back of the line. He gets put on a Nazi prisoner train heading to Auschwitz. And while people were trying to break out of Auschwitz, he broke in. And there he is on the inside. And while he was there, he encouraged inmates. He organized resistance movements. He smuggled out information about what was happening. He documented war crimes. He was there for three years, enduring intense labor, beatings, and eventually he died. Question for us. What would ever possess someone to break into hell to liberate others? Who would ever do that? Love does that. And Vital did it. And he was following his Savior in doing it. Because don't you see, that's what Jesus did. Jesus broke into the realm of death that we call this world. In all of its brokenness, in all of its fallenness, in all of our lives' messed upness. And he comes to liberate. He breaks in from the outside. He did not have to do that. Why did he do it? Out of love. Because he loved us and he thought that we were worth it. He looked at you and said, you're worth my suffering. He climbs down to us. The author of life absorbs death into himself. So what does that do for you and me tonight? A couple questions and we'll be done. First. Are you trying to approach God on your own terms? Are you trying to cut deals with God about the things of your life that you want to hold on to? And you'll give him most of it, but but you're going to keep this thing over here. You're going to keep this relationship, which you know you shouldn't be in. Or you're going to keep this way of living, which you know you shouldn't be living. Or you're going to hold on to all your money and never give it away. Or you're going to do with your time what you want to do with your time and never ask how you can use your time to serve and love the people around you. Where are you trying to cut and make deals with God? And just know that wherever that is, God looks at that and says, that's idolatry. And that's not not who you are. 
And so repent of it and turn from that and come back to me. Second thing, are you hiding dead things in your closet? Are there things in your present and things in your past which, look, they may not be all that bad or they may be very bad. And you're hiding them away and you're trying to keep them hidden so that God won't know about them and so that no one else will know about them. Look, y'all, we're going to learn about this for the weeks to come, but I'll, I'll set you up right here. If there is anything that you're trying to hide from God and others, then rather than controlling it, that thing is controlling you because that's what idols do. We think that we're worshiping them. We think that we're fine and we're cozying up to them as long as I can keep it hidden. But that thing is ruining you and you know it. It's exhausting to try to live a life where you have to cover up in all the ways. When the blood is trying to seep out through the cracks of that door, that door frame, it is exhausting trying to keep it in. So I would just say this. If you're trying to hide anything in your heart which you know is not pleasing to God, hear the invitation in this passage. Hear Jesus saying, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden with all of your efforts at trying to make your life work and keep it together, come and let me clean your closet out for you. Throw that thing onto me and come and find the life that you were made to have. That's the gospel. It is good news for tired people. It is wholeness for idolaters. And it's what you and I both need. Let's pray.